Hey everyone, this is Christopher Luxon, the former CEO of Air New Zealand. This is John Lee Dumas, the founder and host of Entrepreneurs on Fire. This is Tracy Ibarra. I'm an executive solutions at Dell Technologies. This is Travis Chappell, founder of Build Your Network. If you are wanting to learn how to embrace change, to navigate through disruption as a leader, then listen to the Leadership is Changing podcast. The Leadership is Changing podcast. The Leadership is Changing podcast with my good friend, my very good friend, Dennis Giannoutsos. Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change. This is taking your leadership to another level by finding the balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsos. I am hailing from Los Angeles, and it's a beautiful day, as always. Mm. Can't complain. Sometimes I still do. <laughs> very, very good. And are you originally from the U.S.? Have you been always your life in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I grew up in Colorado and moved out to L.A. about, well, it's hard to say, but I think about 20 years ago. So those have been my primary, primary locations and backgrounds. Yep. Okay. And I understand from career-wise, you've built uh, your career as an executive around both sides of the coast of the U.S., by the sounds of it, an integrated marketing and communications agencies and so forth and, and building that. What has it been like? Is, is com- communication and marketing different on each side of the coast of the United States? It, it can be. It, it all depends on what you're after. I was an executive for uh, an integrated marketing PR firm for a number of years, mm-hmm. almost 15. And we had offices on the West Coast and the East Coast. I think the biggest difference was East Coast was primarily finance-driven whereas West Coast is primarily consumer-driven. But there was always this B2Me mix that kind of trans- transcended any sort of geography. Yep. Okay, yeah, cool. So that's awesome. And uh, tell me something else. I think the, do you, do you follow any sports in the US or around the world? I'm, I'm one of the few that doesn't in, in LA. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really interested in, 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 in media and I guess you would call it the, the nerd culture. I'm big into comics and, and movies and things like that, games. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah and t- tell us a little bit more about your background. Is there anything else you want to share that we haven't already shared so far with the listeners? I have, I think, an interesting background. I was basically outside of the comms world that when I started with the agency, and then I kind of grew up into an executive physician, and then since then started my own practice. And so I think I have an interesting point of view because uh, one of the reasons that I, I ended up making that change into my own practices because I'm seeing a lot of antiquated points of view and mindsets in the agency environment, but also in the corporate environment. And so it was very difficult to actually reach good business goals because we are all using old tech, basically. And so I wanted to start my own way so I could so I could be more f- frank and integrated with the uh, clients that I work with mm. and have a better impact both on their business goals, but on the world, on the community. And so it was a, it was an interesting journey and just kind of being disillusioned with, with the whole industry and having to move into another world basically to, to navigate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those mindsets, interesting and, and having to navigate it. <laughs> wow. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we get into this. Cause you know, as we said, leadership is changing this. We're going to talk about how did you get into leadership? It grew into leadership through the agency environment, leading by coastal teams and actually doing a lot of administrative operational kinds of stuff while also doing business development. I had to wear a lot of hats. We were always joking about constantly being a startup mode for the last 15 years. Uh, that was, that was kind of my role. 
But as I pivoted into my own practice, I actually started working with leaders, in particular, tackling communications and marketing problems from the point of view of leadership and industry leadership. And so I actually work with executives, communications teams, and clients in general, just on, on, on positioning themselves as leaders in the marketplace as an approach. And that's, that's sort of where I landed and where I am now. Yeah, very good. I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you there around this, uh, what you just shared. One was, is really around, what was the transition like for you from working with Fortune 500 companies, corporate world, to transition into your own or our business net? What was that transition like for you? It was startling, uh, just to put a word on it. Mm. But what was, what was startling about it was that the realization that the corporate structure is just built with a framework of bottlenecks where everybody's getting in the way of everybody else, even though they have a shared goal and intention. And when I got out of that structure, I, I was startled about how quickly and efficiently and, and, and functionally efficient everything worked and therefore how much more effective everything was. Everything from meetings to, you know, just w- what I'm doing on a, on a Saturday afternoon. I mean, all of that works so much better without that corporate structure. It's amazing how, and I really love what you just shared there about the fact that in the corporate world, a framework of bottlenecks. It is so true, right? I mean, there's so many bottlenecks. And I, I sit there as well, Mark, and I go, what the heck are they doing here? And how much money has been wasted and spent here? And, you know, what are we doing? And where's the results? Where's the outcomes? Oh, but it was a great meeting. And I'm like, really? Yeah. So I think, I don't know what your thoughts are there and about what, what organizations should be doing to get rid of those bottlenecks. What do you think? Uh, well, I think the biggest challenge is that the goals are typically not aligned. And so, like, you know, why are we having this meeting? Has that been defined? Just talking practically, but, but organizationally, what, what are we doing here? What is the point of this business? And what is my role? If you don't, if you don't know the point of the organization, then how are you supposed to know your role? And how are you supposed to know what your goals and objectives are? And so I, I think that the way businesses can kind of dismantle some of those bottlenecks is simply by aligning around what we're after. And, and what we're trying to do as an organization. And, and, and that has to be something bigger than profit. It has to be something that, that actually is trying to impact the world that the business is in, in a positive way. And, and otherwise, you know, there's, there's no point in doing it. Hmm. I mean, profit's profit. That's all very nice. But then if it doesn't have meaning behind it, the value, and as you said, the impact, then what's the point in doing it? And I, and I agree with you. I think the aligning pace is really important. I mean, I asked execs that I coach as well, you know, how many meetings are you going to? Well, I'm going to all these meetings and so forth. And I go, okay, but do you actually understand the purpose of the meeting? No. And I'm like, well, you've got to ask that question. What's the purpose? Otherwise, why go? I think it's. I had a talk with a client just this before we started talking about this. So we have a standing meeting and I'm saying, okay, the purpose of this meeting is to look at what was done and then what we're going to do. And whether or not what we are going to do happened, why it failed. And, I, and I, that's an email. I mean, we, we don't need to get a CEO to spend 20 minutes talking about what was done and what wasn't. I mean, we, we need to get a CEO to get their insight strategically on what we should be doing, you know, or, or to, to get their buy-in or whatever. But, but too many meetings, too many meetings just in general. Yeah, absolutely. So that was one thing. And the second thing, that based on what you said earlier, was about you helping leaders and that around, it's more just like their brand, if I want to put it, I'm, I'm going to say it that way, you tell me if that's right or wrong. But I think the thing here is that you're helping people understand their place in the market is what you think you're saying and so forth. So how important is it for them to understand why, where they stand in the market, what they offer in the market and about their own branding? How important is this? 
I think it's critical. However, to add a caveat is that we, we tend to focus on the wrong thing when it comes to my place in the market. I would argue most organizations focus on what they deliver to the market and why that's interesting or important features and benefits. What is the thing? How does that benefit the audience? And, and I, I, I think everybody does that. I mean, that's table stakes, I suppose. You have to do that to some extent, but nobody's talking about why. Why are we doing this to begin with? And really what ends up happening when you start asking those questions is what you're looking externally now. You're not looking in, inside the organization and saying, well, our widget does this thing. Our widget can open wine better than any other wine opener that's ever been invented. But then you have to ask, well, why is that important to the people we're talking to? Well, that's important because now you can get your evening back and you can have that date with your partner. That's a value statement. And that's, I, I think if we use the, the, the value that you bring to the world as your communications platform, then suddenly you are automatically positioned in the marketplace. You automatically have differentiation because your competitors are probably not thinking like that. I mean, that's how Nike think. That's how Don Soap thinks. That's how, you know, Mars Candy thinks, but that's not how businesses in the mid-market or even in, in the Fortune 500. Mm -hmm. So you have an organization called Smart Suite, is that correct? It is, yes. Smart Suite is a work management platform that allows organizations to manage any process or project on a single platform. So you may think of a lot of organizations or a lot of employees in organizations use a combination of tools, on average six to eight different tools to kind of do their job each day. So we've tried to combine all of those different tool sets that you typically use from forms and collaboration tools and project management and process management and integration, dashboarding, business analytics, all into a single platform called SmartSuite. Oh, that's great. You know what? I, I, of course, coach a lot of uh, executives and that around the world. And I say to them, any high-performing executive, team, sporting team, whatever it is, organization, always have the right tools, systems, and processes in place. And that's what makes them high-performing. And I think, listeners, if you are wanting to know how you can go to other levels in that, think very seriously about the tools, the processes, and the systems that you have around you, which is, which is really important. Now, John, I noticed that in your bio, your background as well, you, you had an organization called Archer Technologies, and that was purchased by EMC Corporation in 2010. And also you held leadership positions with both EY and Price Waterhouse. Archer Technologies, what do they do? And how, how was that? that? Was it a lot of fun for you to be able to sell it in that? And how, how was that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think Archer Technologies really started from an idea I had while I was at Ernst & Young. So I ran their global cybersecurity program, actually started and ran that program. We had about 1,500 consultants around the world providing services to help secure organizations. At that time, online banking was just taking off. So there was a lot of services around, how do I secure systems around online banking for public-facing websites for the first time? And as I traveled the world and met with customers, I listened to their problems, and we would solve that by providing a service. And then six months later, we'd come back and provide the same service again with a new set of recommendations. But there was no process on how to manage security in an organization. So I left Ernst & Young, started a company called Archer Technologies. I spent like the first four months just trying to figure out how to solve the problem with technology from a software perspective. I looked at security as a process, just like accounts payable, accounts receivable, HR, any process that's in a company. And the light bulb finally hit me in month four. I figured it out in my head, approached our first client, which was EDS in Plano, Texas, before we ever had a, wrote a line of code. And EDS signed a three-year agreement in two weeks and said, you have to be successful. And they actually paid us more than what we proposed for the pricing over the, the SaaS model over three years because they felt it was such a need. And 
Archer went on to become the leading company in what's known now as governance, risk, and compliance. 75 of the Fortune 100 were customers when we sold the company, 29 of the top 30 financial services companies. Like it just really took off. We were the kind of the first player in that space. They're still operating out of the same location in Overland Park, Kansas, where we founded the company. It's been sold. EMC was sold to Dell Computers, and then Dell rolled this back out to a private equity group about a year ago. And I hear they're trying to go public and they have around 700, 750 million a year in recurring revenue. So pretty sizable company. It was, it was great to start it with a couple of people. My wife and my mom were co-founders that my wife ran sales and marketing and my mother uh, ran hall operations uh, for us. Well, wow, wow. The, this is amazing because yeah. I worked for EDS. Oh, really? uh, yeah. And so when would you have paired up with EDS? Would that have been the early 2000s or mid-2000s? Yeah. yeah, it was 2001. They were our first customer. They were responsible for really the impact that the company had across all these other Fortune 100 companies started with EDS and just the need that they had to secure systems in relation to the General Motors outsourcing deal that had happened at that time. Yeah, well, I, I work for an organization here in New Zealand called Databank Systems, which was really the clearinghouse for all banks here because they're all locally owned in New Zealand. And then in 1993, I think they were bought out by EDS. And then EDS, about nine months later to a year later, purchased government computing services. So then all of government was almost outsourced to, to EDS as well. Loved that time with them. And then 96 left, went to Europe to live for five years, came back, went back to EDS again and to some senior roles in that. But uh, yeah, because New Zealand was looking at launching its own, another bank by the government. And so I was brought in to see if we could actually win that deal, which was fantastic. So yeah, really, really quite interesting. And so in 2001 was probably my first, would it be? No, no, it wouldn't have been. I would have been in uh, probably around 95, 96. No, actually I am right. 2001, I think was my first time I went to Plano, Texas, and it snowed. (laughs) <laughs> which was which was happened. ridiculous. It, yeah, no, never. and so and they were like, "What do we do?" Which is quite interesting to see. Yeah. Hey, so okay, you you own those organizations, but how did you get into leadership? Yeah, you know, my first, I, I guess, you know, I, I started my career at a small company in Newport Beach, California, and I thought I wanted to get into real estate development, so I went to work for an accounting, tax, and consulting company that did work for the large real estate developer locally that had about a hundred plus high rise buildings uh, at that time. And I had the chance to work in a company of about a hundred people. And I really, I learned a lot of great ways to lead people from the leader of that company. And that kind of propelled me to the next phase of my career. When I went to work for Price Waterhouse. that was my first true leadership position. I only had maybe 10 people, 15 people there that lasted a couple of years. And we were Really, really successful. And Ernst and Young hired me away to run their global practice. So I went from running a small team to running a team of about 1,500 people just in the matter of two or three years. So that's at Ernst and Young was where I really grew up from a, a leadership perspective. Running an organization as large as that, that you did, I presume you, it all was nice and smooth. There was no problems at all. <laughs> or in those days, I mean, those days, what was sort of the main focus for, for you as a leader? Yeah. So at at that time, it was all about understanding the services that we wanted to offer as an organization. And then productizing those services was a big word at at Ernst Young, meaning we wanted to document those services in a way that they could be delivered by different groups of people anywhere in the world and be delivered consistently each time, right? So we would not only document the 
the proposals and the statements of work and you know, the services that we offered and the pricing, but then the work aids that helps our, our people actually do the work and the checklist and different things that we use to say, here's how we provide this service. And as you're doing that service, here's how you check off that you've done all of these things. And then all the deliverables associated with that. And then even the presentations that were back to management when it was over. So our, our goal was to bring all of that together. And then I would travel the world and put leadership teams in place that would deliver those services. And I think we had some 30 different geographies around the world. So I spent a lot of time traveling. I think we had 19 just in the U.S. that we were responsible for. And then I would help those leaders in those geographies hire the people that they needed to provide those types of services in their geography. And then one of the key things that we tried to do is we would bring people into these new geographies from another geography. Then maybe the New York guys would come to Kansas City and work on projects and show the Kansas City crew how they actually deliver those. So they'd be trained by kind of the leading experts in the company. And we created a national practice of kind of the best of the best resources that we had that would continually travel around and help uh, really help educate the young people that we were hiring that were just coming on board. And some of those people turned out to be the who's who's list today in the cybersecurity space from founding of CrowdStrike and George Kurtz. And I, I could go on and on, but there was a lot of great leaders that, that were very young at the time that we worked together that went on to, to found and build some of the best companies on the security. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world.